0: Father, thank you so much for the blessing it is to to hear from you each and every week, um, to be encouraged by the fellowship of each other, to have our hearts strengthened through worship and song. So I pray now as we worship through the hearing of scripture and the the preaching and the reading of your word, that you would uh, both teach our hearts the deep significance of what inheritance means for us, a word that... Especially reading in the Bible, we just see it as another Bible word, but has a, a depth to it that leads to a great encouragement. So secondly, I just pray that we would leave not condemned by a list of sins, um, an expectation of morality that none of us can live up to, but we would leave, um, I, I believe as you intend through these words, um, firm in our identity, that we would leave with acknowledgement and the trust that we were washed, that we were sanctified, that we were justified on the cross through your son. So in that light, Lord, I look forward to um, preaching your word, and I look forward to um, admonishing the saints to live in righteousness, but ultimately encouraging us, that, those that, that are children of God, will. So I pray that you would just guide my words, um, and that you would be glorified this morning. Amen. All right, so my name is Darren. I'm one of the pastors here. You guys don't get to see me speaking up here very often, but Dan's still on vacation. I think they got back today or maybe tomorrow. Um, but I wanted to start with a, a little bit of a story. Um, a couple weeks ago, um, my wife and I were with our three kids um, just a couple blocks down over at the spray park in Bering. And I'm not a big spur-of-the-moment guy, but I, uh, I recognize, like, every once in a while it's fun to do something that's completely unplanned, so we were realizing that we hadn't seen a movie in the theaters for a long time. And our youngest, our youngest girl has never seen a movie in the theaters. And so we were thinking, okay, she's not even two yet. What are we going to watch that she would not be freaked out by? and She'd also be interested enough and entertained enough that she'd sit through two hours. So our, with the time period, like we pretty much had two options. We could, uh, we could see Secret Life of Pets, which is what we ended up seeing, or we could see Jungle Book, and the reason we shied away from Jungle Book um, is because live action, and we thought it might be a little scarier. But if you guys know Jubilee, our little girl, she is completely obsessed with animals. Like, she, she does the animal sounds she has for cat and dog way more than any other word. And so it actually turned out really well, and she sat through the whole entire movie um, with a lot of... <laughs> making her sounds her dog and cat the whole way through. Um, <laughs> but we, we were... Um, after seeing that movie um, kind of moving ahead about a week, this last week, I was doing what a lot of us do, and just clicking on articles from Facebook and just oh that that 's interesting i 'm going to click on something that 's similar to that and I kind of found myself reading these stories about um, kind of the phenomenon known as like the feral ch- children, like wild child. these stories of kids that grew up with minimal or no human interaction at all, and it 's you know, you you see a story like The Jungle Book, um, and and I haven't seen it for a long time. I just saw the cartoon one. I don't actually remember how, like, the kid got in the jungle or anything. Um, I remember kind of how it ended, and he sees this little girl, and you know, he all of a sudden just, like, learns to be a human very quickly and and do all these very human-like things after living with animals. Um, So I don't know how he got there, but it definitely (laughs) did not seem to be very, very realistic. Most of the stories I read were hugely depressing, and it was usually parental neglect of kids, like, left in closet or left in horrible conditions to where they really were raised by the family pets. And so there's kids that were raised sometimes in jungle areas by like animals and, and wolves and things like that, but often it was raised by the family dogs or cats, sometimes birds. And what was really interesting about all these articles I read, and you'll see where it's going in a second, is that these kids come out of these situations after they're rescued by CPS or, or whoever ends up intervening. Um, they come out with this learned belief that they are an animal because they've been treated that way, and then this practice behavior of an animal. So, you know, like a boy that was raised in a room full of birds comes out unable to do much else than squawk and flap his arms. Um, Little kids that were raised by dogs end up speaking only through barking. And the very sad thing is that almost all these stories don't end with the very happy ending, like they were rescued and they learned how to be a normal child again. They mostly end very sadly. And I found one story... It was very hopeful. Sorry to start out on such a downer, but <laughs> one story is very hopeful. There was a little girl in India who, at four, her and her brother were out—I guess just out exploring—and they got lost. And after two weeks, the brother was found, and the daughter remained lost for years and years. And she was found uh, at age 42. And she was out, and this is India, just wandering in the wild till age 42. And they found out that she'd actually had some human interaction over the years. Every decade or so, she'd randomly find a human, and she wasn't scared at that point, and so that person would kind of adopt and try to kind of help her, and she'd end up escaping again because the transition and the change was too much. Um, she was too used to life, as more um, acting as more of an animal than a human. And the reason this was um, an encouraging story is that throughout these like, few places where she had human interaction, she picked up a few words. I think she only knew six or seven, but one of them was Dada. And what I learned through this story is that when she was found, she was found by her father who never stopped looking for her. And so he must have been at least in probably his 60s, late 50s. He was a little bit older, and he lived in a couple villages away. And he heard um, a description of the girl that seemed to match, um, I guess a similar birthmark on her arm or leg, I forget. And he ended up traveling down there to find out. And this is where kind of the heartstrings you know, come in because she sees him and immediately recognizes him and runs using one of the few words she has, dada. And it actually seems to end well. You don't know all the struggles and the trials of actually trying to adapt back into human culture, but that is sadly the exception to the rule that most of these kids continue to believe and behave as though they're more animals than human and have severe psychological handicaps. I think the reason these stories are so sad, how it connects, is that these kids have learned to live as though they're less than human. And if you guys have been at Taproot for any length of time, you've heard Dan say, probably almost weekly, that like, God's desire, his plan for us, is for you to be fully you, for us to be fully us, um, for us to be more fully human, that sin has actually been a dehumanizing of the way that God's created us to be. And so what's so sad about these stories, because you can see stories of people kind of becoming more like who they're with. I mean, we all become a lot like the people we spend our time with, and you can see that. in you know, also sad situations of, you know, the junior high kid that tries to, you know, kind of go with peer pressure, or do what he can to fit in, and that's sad, but it's not nearly as sad as these stories of kids that completely were neglected and were, I guess the difference with the story of, of the children and the feral children thing is that it's dehumanizing to an extent that we very rarely see. And I think what we see in this list as we read that scripture is a list of attributes in these believers at this church in Corinth that showed that they were living as less than human. And I believe that's where um, Paul's heart was grieved and I think that's what he was trying to show them that they're not living like the people they actually are in Christ. They're in an identity crisis and they're living um, in a way that's not like a child of God. So the behavior is out of character. Um, this sermon kind of continues what Jim preached. And if you guys see the first slide, Belief Determines Behavior, that was his sermon title. This is essentially part two, because if you notice, the text pretty much jumped in midway, like, through that story, like mid-sentence it jumps in. And this really is a continuing off point from last week, so you're going to hear a lot of similar things to what Jim was preaching and the, the kind of context of the whole book of 1 Corinthians, we're about one-third of the way through, so we still have a bit to go, is this is a little bit of a hinge point, but throughout the first part of the book, Paul talks to this church and says, you've adopted this worldly wisdom, this worldly way of thinking about and living in the midst of Corinth, which is a very similar city to some place like Seattle or Bering, which is very secular, very spiritual, and just a plethora of different views on things, and everyone's wanting to go find the newest wisdom and the newest kind of way of living or making their life better. It's no different in Corinth, and what you see here in Corinth is they'd adopted this worldly wisdom, even though God, as their adoptive father, had given them his wisdom through the Holy Spirit that was pure. They'd abandoned their call to settle their own divisions and their own conflicts in their church through that wisdom, and instead outsourced That wisdom, that decision, um, kind of their lead and how to live to the world around them. And Paul contrasted the wisdom of the world with the wisdom to the Spirit early in his letter when he says, The foolishness of God is wiser than men. Even the things that, I I don't think, I think he's speaking kind of in hyperbole. Like, there is no foolishness of God, but if there was a spectrum of God's wisdom, even the least of the, the wise things of God would be way wiser than. Any wisdom of a man. And he's trying to reorient them um, so they actually understand what they've done, why they've actually moved away from God's direction and God's call. So he does that before he moves into the actual physical problems of the church. Like we looked in chapter 5, where there's a man who says he has his father's wife. He's having sex with his stepmother. And he goes through all these kind of egregious. Sins, but he starts it off with saying, "You guys have adopted a way of thinking and a way of believing that is contrary to the Spirit's wisdom." And the reason I included the last verse in, in verse 12, if you guys look in your Bibles, when it talks about, um, you know, everything is is permissible or everything is lawful. Um, in the Greek, that's more in quotation marks. That's something they were saying. It's like a, a modern-day mantra that they had of like, "Hey, it's not against the law." It's kind of similar to what we say about different sins in our culture. We're like, who's it hurting? You know? What's wrong if I love them? They had these monsters that they believed. Everything's permissible. It's not against the law. It's not against the law to use these courts in Corinth rather than actually try to figure things out amongst ourselves. But Paul counters that with these two sayings. He says, not everything is helpful. Like, what's the point? What's the overall point of this? And then the last thing he says is, but I won't be mastered by anything. Like, what's controlling your desires? What's causing you to live this way within the church? So, Paul, in the section last week that Jim preached about, um, he began to kind of scold them because they had abdicated their calling to be a people led by the Spirit and His wisdom, trusting the world's ways um, and wisdom and laws. So that led to them, um, as Jim talked about, having lawsuits against each other. They literally abandoned the law of God as their guiding principle and went to what was legal, using the court's laws instead of actually trying to live in harmony with each other they accommodated to the world. So, if you remember from last week as Jim preached, he had three main themes um, in his sermon. He had three big like, main points of unbelief that that church had. And these three false beliefs led to three false behaviors. The so belief determines behavior. and The three of them were, they were one, not believing they were forgiven, and so they weren't forgiving one another. Two, they weren't believing that they were a family, so they were thinking only of themselves. They weren't thinking as an actual family with their own chores, responsibilities, obligation to love one another. And then three, they weren't believing that they were inheriting the kingdom of God, and so they were pursuing the world's riches and the world's power. Get it now, because they didn't believe they would get it later. So as you can see from how this section begins, the same train of thought, like I said, and you'll see a lot of those points that Jim had. Um, I told him I'm just going to pretty much let him do all the footwork for this sermon, since he's prepared kind of for the whole section of that first sermon. So I'll be using some of that, and you guys will hear some of those points of forgiveness of family and inheritance come up as we go into it. So let's first start on inheritance and focus in there. Um, as I was saying in my prayer, I think that's an under-understood, um, <laughs> misunderstood, um, or under-understood section um, of theology for a lot of Christians. So until I started studying for this sermon, I'd um, never really realized how much like the themes of kingdom and inheritance were woven through this whole book. Um, but looking back, you guys can check for yourselves. Words like inheritance, words like kings, kingdom, um, judging, judges, judgment—all these kingdom themes are here throughout the book a lot more than I ever realized before. And it's in this section that we look at today, where it has a list of of ten different sins. Um, that we see that Paul's emphasis really is on the inheriting the kingdom, not those specific sins. Um, there's kind of bookends, if you will, on inheritance. So for us to kind of help, um, for us to understand the tone of, how, of what Paul intends, I want to go into what I think he means and what he's getting at when he talks about inheritance. There is a, a rich history among like, Christians for what inheritance meant. that stretches all the way back to the Old Testament. So a little bit of, of overview history for you guys. Um, the Greek word for inheritance that's used means a share of the lot. And I think one of the big things that Christians don't understand is inheritance. Now we think of just, you know, if a parent passes away, we get some money. Um, Back then, especially in a very agricultural culture, um, it had to do primarily with this land that was inherited. There was family plots. And that's where the word comes from. So in the Old Testament, God gave Israel a land as an inheritance. And it was called the promised land. We're all probably familiar with that word and it had a lot of nice-sounding things attached to it, a land flowing with milk and honey. don't really know exactly what that looks like, but it sounds pretty nice. Um, And you see all the way from the very beginning of Scripture, in the very beginning beginning chapters of the Bible, it shows that God actually prepared and kind of custom-fit a land, this promised land for the people of God, and there's only one stipulation, one condition for them living in that and kind of co-reigning with God over the creation, over that perfect earth that he'd made, and that one condition was obedience. They were told not to eat from the tree or they would die. They would lose that land, that inheritance. So it doesn't take very long. We don't actually know how long it took, but eventually they ate and they were cast out and they went east of Eden, so to speak. That's how, that's how the phrase is used. So essentially they ended up over living in what we know as Babylon, or in scriptural terms. Um, and you fast forward quite a few generations and you have Abraham who is given this vision from God, that God was going to give him inheritance. God was going to give him descendants, and he was going to get the promised land as a gift from God, as God has chosen a people to give that to. And so Abraham moves back from east, west, into that land of promise. And th- there we see the theme of inheritance really pick up in Scripture. You have Abraham's son, who had a son, who's Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. And those 12 sons are promised at the end of Jacob's life this inheritance where they would get this land, this promised land that they were gonna that they would that they were in, and they would be split up into kind of twelve kingdoms, twelve tribes. So the idea of that was that the firstborn son would get a double portion and it would get an inheritance of that land. So you fast forward quite a few years later, after one of the sons, Joseph, is taken into slavery. The whole rest of the family comes because of a famine into Egypt, so they're again cast out of the land because of disobedience. And you see, again, fast forward, as the 400 years, the, this little family of Israel grows into a huge nation, they're now under captivity and bondage, and God frees them yet again, bringing them back into the land through Moses, through the Red Sea, back into the Promised Land, again with that condition. If you, if you obey, you can stay in this land. And I think we all know who that, how that went. Um, they eventually, more generations later, again kept disobeying God's law, and God kept promising you'll be exiled again. And so there's a nation called Babylon um, and the Assyrians that came and took him back out of that land, um, Israel, exiled east again. So you have now, fast forward to when this letter was written, modern day, for Paul, and Israel has kind of trickled back into that land. Babylon let them go. A lot of them stayed in Babylon. Many of them came back in. And everything that they had known of the promised land before, having a temple, having a king in that kingdom, it was all a shadow of what it once was. There was nothing but like a shell of the original inheritance, the original kingdom of God left. That promised land, it was almost like you're living in a home but it, it was your home, but like you never really felt like you were actually, that it was yours. It was occupied by the Roman Empire at that point. They were strangers in their own land, living in it but not possessing it. So that posed a problem. When the New Testament authors talked about there still remains a rest, there still remains a promised land, they were writing that while they were living within that promised land place. And the problem was that a promised land isn't just about the land. The inheritance isn't about the land. It's about an ownership over it. that's where the idea of an inherited kingdom comes in. Kingdom connects with inheritance because you really have to actually own the land to actually reign over it. And earlier, even from the very beginning of Scripture, that idea of kingdom was there too, where they were told to subdue the earth, to take dominion. There was a rulership that was meant to be there with an ownership of that land. But you can't actually have a kingdom unless you possess it. So that's why the Romans... When Jesus came, they felt threatened because they thought Jesus would become that earthly king that would take back the land from them, or at least desire to. That's why a lot of the Jews, a lot of the religious Jews, had this misunderstanding that Jesus was just there to be an earthly king like David, to take back the physical land. But there was something deeper going on. As he said, there's a promise that remains, an inheritance that remains, and that Jesus was ultimately going to be the fulfillment of. So as I said before, um, inheritance Entails the death of the owner, um, and that's that's what they were waiting for. They didn't know how this would actually happen, because the people who essentially own the land, owned the land weren't promised the inheritance. So that's the dilemma they're in. Um, I grew up in a church. I remember being scared of the section, not because I was thinking, "Oh no, how are we gonna? How is Israel gonna get that land back?" Like, what does this mean? I was mainly as a like a pubescent teen, just scared as I started reading, like the sexual immoral sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Already, I'm like, well, I'm screwed. I don't even need to read on. Like, there it is. Like, I'm out. And at that point, I wasn't a Christian. But like, fast forward a few years later, as I was 15, I became a Christian. Kind of the 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 teeth of that section, like that bite, like no longer like hurt so much because I, I recognize that there's all these all this language of those who live in these things, those who those people that have their identity in these sins, they won't inherit the kingdom. They are not sons of that King. Um, That no longer had a threat to me because I had experienced God adopting me as a son. I had experienced him accepting me, Um, but I was still left with confusion because it still seemed to say those who did these things wouldn't get into the kingdom, wouldn't get into heaven. It still didn't seem to make sense. So I want to move into the list and hopefully through our time going through the list of sins that Paul lays out, um, hopefully help explain why he lists the things he lists and what he's trying to teach us. Through that. So we're going to go and look at this, these lists that are all nouns that I think connect more to identity than our individual action. Um, Paul likes lists. You see over and over throughout um, all his writings, he has little groupings of, of lists. And often at first sight, it seems like he's just arbitrarily throwing in things that come to mind. But I think that Paul actually has a very specific point for why he lists what he lists, and it all connects to a point he's trying to make overall in the letter. So, kind of going through the list, there's two clear, I think, groupings in this list. They fall into the two categories of um, greed and then sexual immorality. And I think that they're, they're both kind of different ways of looking at lust. There's lust for material things, and there's lust for pleasure. There's sexual lust. Um, if you guys look down your Bibles and look through that list, there's one that, at least for me, and I think many others seem to jump out as where does this fit? If those, if those are the two categories and you know it's not that it has two headings on there, but I think they do fit into two categories. Where does drunkenness fit? Um, I've heard people postulate that maybe because drunkenness does often lead to sexual proclivity um, maybe it fits into there. But when we're looking at this list, it's not isolated. It's in a whole letter where Paul's actually addressing all the things he lists out throughout the whole letter. We see that um, the section on greed is primarily referring to the section that we just looked at last week about lawsuits in the church and about desire for more. And then the, sex, the sections on sexuality are going to be talked about in the next few weeks by Dan as he goes into um, a couple chapters that talk about um, sex, marriage, relationships, all that stuff. But drunkenness, we see later on in 1 Corinthians that Paul describes what they were doing when they were coming together as a church to meet together. They, all, they came together for a meal and it says... For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, Paul says. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So I believe that's explained as people are coming and essentially drinking everyone else's cup, getting drunk while the other person actually goes hungry and thirsty. So I think it connects to greed in Paul's context here. So let's go through some of the, the stuff in the list. So if you guys look, I didn't actually list the, the sins that are listed out there under material lust, but if you guys look through, it's the first five that are on there. And the first grouping includes thieves, greedy, revilers, swindlers, and drunkards. And they're all listed together there at the beginning. Like I said, Paul just finished teaching on um, that there was lawsuits happening in the church, and it ought not to be that way. He says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? when it comes to injustices happening to you. So I think that there's greed motivating these lawsuits, and I'm not going to get into the, these lists of sins too deeply, but I do want to look and explain some of them. Um, Jim preached again last week on it more in detail, and Dan's in his preach on the sexual, sexuality stuff in the next few weeks. But in the first category, um, I think reviler um, fits, and the reason it's in there is because it's used often in a court sense, um, that Greek word is used as someone that comes to essentially shout insults at the person that's, that's sitting there you know, on trial for something. And it's, it's used to essentially do character assassination, to, to slander their name. So that's what that fits into that Greek. It's usually used in the context of trying to get something from someone else in a court sense. Um, and you know, as Jim talked about last week, you, ni- you guys might not be like, in the middle of a lawsuit with another Christian or you not, might not be getting sued, but it still applies to us in the sense that we're all lusting after wealth and possessions and material things. There's always something that we're desiring to have um, that usurps the the desire for God in our lives. So if we're looking at swindling, um, lusting after things that we already have and want more of, or we're lusting after things that we don't have and tempting us towards thievery, there's lust after the comfort or escape. It's supposed to come through Jesus, but we get it through drunkenness. Where there's a lust after our reputation or people's approval, and so we revile to make ourselves look better. And there's just the category of greediness, which is kind of a, an overall, um, kind of general category for all of that. So material lust, um, I'm just going to go over these things again, like I said, but just ask yourself as you're going through here, like what is it if God asked me to stop trying to get, whether it's kind of to that place in, in your work, in your place of employment, um, get into that relationship, get out of the season with the kids. Whatever it is, what are you trying to like get to that if God said, you're never going to get there, you'd kind of throw a little temper tantrum? What is it that you have that you're very happy to keep? That if God said, like you did with the rich young ruler, give up everything you have and follow me, how much hesitation would be there? Would the hesitation be all that there was? Or would there be obedience? These are questions um, that I don't think I need to, to go into um, examples because I think we all have something that pops in our head when the question is what do we want the most that we don't have? What do we not want to lose that we have? And then how can we get in a place in our hearts that we're willing to have those in an open hand to sacrifice to God if he were to ask? So looking at the sexual lust category, this grouping includes five as well, the sexually immoral, idolaters, um, adulterers, and men who practice homosexuality. And like the other list, it covers um, the category broadly. I think Paul's careful to, in these two categories of greed and sexuality, not to leave anything out. And he uses the term sexually immoral, which is the Greek word pornea, which you guys can probably guess is where we get our word porn. And it's, it is, I've heard it called a junk drawer word before. It's essentially like anything that is Different than the way God's designed sexuality to be, which is between a husband and a wife in the confines and the safety and the goodness of marriage. So we often look through these things and say, Well, I'm not committing adultery because I'm not married. Well, I'm not doing this. Like, hey, I'm straight, so I can't be sinning this way. He says, These are the ways that we sin. It's pornea, it's anything that there's a sexual lust. In our hearts, as Jesus says, anyone who looks after a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her. So whether it's a blatant sin or whether you're you know, single and you're just messing around even emotionally with someone of the opposite sex for the desire to have some satisfaction, some physical lust satisfaction for yourself, that falls under that category. Um, again, Dan's going to go into a lot more detail in the coming weeks, but idolaters um, in this context would almost surely be those that were... Um, Uh, engaging prostitutes in different temples of worship for other religions. And we'll get into that later again. Uh, Adulterers is pretty straightforward. Um, At least it kind of should be. I think that that's one of those things that it's straightforward unless you're the one committing adultery. Then you excuse it with things like, well, it's not really hurting anybody, or it's just flirtation, or it's just a few texts, or it's just in my mind. Um, but it's essentially thinking about, like, if my wife were to see the thoughts that I'm having about this other person, if my husband were to see the thoughts that I'm having, the interactions that I'm having, would that be something I would be completely fine with? Um, If the answer is no, then adultery. Um, Oftentimes we we excuse these things, um, but um, God gives us a very broad term and a place of, of goodness and safety in our sexuality. So, those of you guys that are clever counters probably noticed that I said there's five um, things listed in the sexual category here. You may have noticed that I only read four. Um, sexual, immoral, idolaters, adulterers, and men who commit or practice homosexuality. And the reason that our Bibles actually have four is because there's one Greek word in there for men who practice homosexuality that, if you guys aren't familiar with the Greek, it's actually a much broader language than English, there's a lot more words that can define specific things in the Greek than there are in English. We have a more limited language. And that word that's used there for men who practice homosexuality um, in, in the Greek is actually, it's one word, but it has two people meant within it. So it's literally the one, the, the, the male homosexual who is in the active role, or the giving role, and the male homosexual is in the passive role, or the receiving role. And it actually has a, not just a, a noun focus, but there's also verbiage in it. And so I think Paul is very careful um, through this sin, but also through all the sins, to not say the desire for this sin is wrong in itself. So there's, there's many people that have sexual desires or heterosexual desires that are not meant to be fulfilled, obviously, until heterosexual marriage. But Paul's not like saying the fact that you're tempted in this way or the fact that you're oriented in this way is wrong. He's literally saying those that become this person through an active and disobedient rebellion in living in it, those are the ones who fall into that category, whether you're in the passive position or the active positions, actually. not so. Um, I think that's important to define because a lot of people look at this and say, just because someone struggles with that, that means that's who they are, and that means that they're in that noun c- category, and that means they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's not what it's saying. It's saying someone who chooses to live as though that's their identity. And so, it's a Not a very popular or comfortable thing to talk about in our culture, but I I do believe that the Bible, um, we have to come to the Bible willing to actually let God's viewpoint of things um, override our feelings or the things that we um, wanted to say. Like we often look at our lives and we size it up next to the Bible, and if the Bible doesn't agree with us, we say the Bible contradicts ourselves. But the reality is the Bible just contradicts you. And so that idea in verse 12 that all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial, all things are permissible but not be mastered by anything, it's the question even, it's actually what are you mastered by? What are you not able to stop doing? What are you not able to stop thinking about? And that gives you an indication of where you are, where your Lord is. Um, So that covers the whole list there. And I want to get into Paul's kind of explanation of, of I think, why he lists all the things he does and what we're supposed to do with that, because I don't think his intent is to leave us in a place of condemnation or a place of feeling though we're judged as believers. We see right after this that he says, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. Um, It says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, justified. In the Greek, there's almost like three different sentences with almost exclamation marks at the end, like, but this is you now. But this is you now. But this is you now. And what we need to see through these three aspects of salvation, of being washed, sanctified, and justified, is if we really believe those things, us believing those things will change us. That's the point behind Paul teaching these things, that these beliefs are meant to determine behaviors that will look differently. The reason that some of the people in Corinth were actually doing the things listed in this, these groupings of sin is because they had stopped believing that they were really washed, they were really pure, that they were really justified and made right before God. So going to, to, to try to determine what Paul's motive is in listing these things, and what his hope is for them, it's positive and it's not negative, and he's hoping to encourage them into righteous living, not to discourage them into depression and hopelessness. Um, God's definitely bringing some serious correction to this church through Paul. And that doesn't, those don't negate each other. Just because God's trying to encourage us through what Paul's saying doesn't mean he's also not trying to correct us through what he's listed out there. And we see throughout this, this whole section that's leading up to this point that um, chapter earlier, Paul starts talking that as though he's, I'm your spiritual father, he tells them. Um, and then he's, he goes on to throw this list out. If you look through like the last couple chapters in 1 Corinthians for the question marks, Paul asks question after question. And they're kind of rhetorical, They're kind of just incredulous, like how could you kind of questions, like I don't understand this. This isn't who you are, why are you living this way? Um, This isn't what God's um, bought for you, why are you still engaging in this? So listen to Paul's tone, I'm going to go through a few of the questions that he's had leading up to this. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Do you not know that you're God's temple and the Holy Spirit dwells in you? What do you have you didn't receive? If you received it, why do you boast like you didn't receive it? What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? And then right up to the section, right? It's like, why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather be wronged? Why are you so deceived? And I think if, if we think about it, like, like Paul has kind of asked us to you by saying, I'm your spiritual father, think about it, like those that are parents in the room. Well, we know that our proclivity, our temptation is to discipline in a way that's out of frustration. Like our world and what we were hoping for our day gets disrupted. So, take it out on the kids. They're the, they're the ones that are ruining my kingdom in this home. Like that tends to be like our our temptation to go that way, to, to discipline out of anger, discipline out of frustration, or just to discipline to get results just for our own comfort. But we see like we know what good parenting is. That we've we've those of us who've had good parents have experienced it. Those of us that have seen God as the perfect Father have have learned this. That a good parent does often comes to the kids. I mean, like my. My oldest boy, Jerome, is probably the person I had the most in-depth conversations with, since he understands the most, but coming to him and just being like, Jerome, what are you doing? Why, why is your heart that way? Do you, why did you need to say that to your sister? Or do you only care about yourself right now? Like, Why do you keep bugging them? What, you know, do you really think that was a loving thing to do? These same kind of questions are the questions that we ask, and they're not condemning if the point in what we're leading up to is, but let me pray. Let's pray together that God would give you a happy heart. Let's recognize that Jesus took our big spanking on the cross. Like Jesus is the one who would give us that new desire to actually love our sister, um, and that, that idea of like I won't leave you. Like there's nothing you can do. There's there's no day that you can be rebellious enough that I would leave you or reject you. There's no, no rebellion that would cause me to reject you. Um, that coming together, I think, is what Paul's doing. He is starting out with like what are you guys doing? And he's moving towards like, guys, this is the only way to change. I know you feel stuck. I know with my daughter, she's been in that position that um, we believe that she's become a Christian and it came to that place of, there was a sin in her life that became exposed. Um, she was essentially caught, not confessed, and it came to a place where, she came to a place of lowness, of like, I can't stop doing this. I've just this broken down tears. And it was, that was a, she got to a place where God brought her to a place where his, her only hope was him. And that was my role as a parent, is to not say, well, this is how you help to do this better. It's like, I know you can't. Guess what? There's a lot of things I don't feel like I can do either. And this is what I pray. Let's pray this together. And that's what really has transformed her, and that's what I pray for my son. I think that's what a good dad and a good mom does with their children. I think that's what Paul is doing here. Um, so if we can hear that tone in Paul's voice, if we can hear that heart, what he's saying when he says, um, such were some of you, it's also in the Greek. It's interesting because it actually says, um, this is this you used to be. It's kind of an identity word. Like you were This was who you were. You used to be this person. And now, yes, you're doing this, but you aren't this. You're acting like someone you're not. As a Christian, the thing you do isn't who you are anymore. And he goes on with this idea of a new identity language. Um, as he lists those things, he says, you know, there's a people that's pretty much recognizing like they've done and still do dirty things, and dirty things have been done to them. And he goes, but you were washed. But you were washed. You're tainted. God can't accept you anymore. You've blown it. Paul goes into it, but you were sanctified, which means pure, made holy, set apart for God. <laughs> but you just realized you, you, can't, you can't fix the wrong you've done so you're unjust. You've done, you've said, you've thought wrong things. And God says, but you're justified. Jesus took that for you on the cross. This is him showing the hope that they actually have as children of God. And he, So he's not aiming at condemning these people and they're changing. And he's showing them the weight of their sin but not trying to say, so do better, try harder. Let's do this again. He's showing them that their problem is that Possibly in this church, but I know oftentimes our problem is that that's all we're doing. We're either given in and like, I've tried too long, I've tried too hard, I'm not going to change. Why even try? We're going to fail. So I'm going to fail and I'm just going to flaunt. I'm going to fail and I'm just going to sin freely because that's who I am. I'm settled. I'm not fighting anymore. Or we fail and flee into this place of, I can't get away with how wrong I am. I know I've failed. I know I'm impure. I'm unwashed. I'm not right. And so we flee. We flee from community. We flee from vulnerability. We flee from people knowing who we really are because if they really knew me, if they knew the real me, they wouldn't accept me anymore. We flee. And Paul's not wanting to do either of those things. He's recognizing that both those things are turning in and looking at yourself. Well, I'm just going to do what I want to do then because screw it. I've already screwed up. I'm just going to hide so I don't have to face the guilt of what I've done so people won't know me. And he says, both those things are looking at yourself, looking inwardly, and your salvation isn't in you, it's outside of you. You were washed by yourself? No, by Christ. He's saying, look out, look at who's done this for you. Uh, I often use an illustration that the only thing more attractive, especially when it comes to like topics like sexual lust, the only thing more attractive, the only thing better to look at, the only thing that's going to keep you from doing that all the time is looking at Jesus. He's the only distraction that will actually work. Because there's only power in Jesus, so he points them to Jesus and what He's done for them, refocusing them, not trying to just modify their behavior. Um, And then Paul, when he, um, like, if we we look at the example of like sexual sin, like we're all tempted to lust or even greed. We're all tempted to desire things that aren't ours and God doesn't have for us. We all have these mantras that we excuse ourselves by, like, who's really getting hurt? who's getting hurt here, or boys will be boys, or hey, you know, screwed if I do, screwed if I don't, like I don't, I'm not going to change anyway. We all have these things we believe that are false, but there's no victory and no hope and no change in that. You're just excusing yourself for moving the goalposts, as the saying goes, it only leads to shame. So these believers were trapped in a false belief and a false behavior, and Paul's trying to show them that the escape wasn't within themselves. Um, he points them to Jesus. So I want to I read you guys a section from Hebrews where um, the author of Hebrews is, is showing what Jesus endured and how he um, lived for us. He says, We do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who is that intercessor, that in between mediator between us and God. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I mean, those of us that look at that list and say, This is what I got to do. It should make us feel pretty weak. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, not missing any respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And this whole section there is talking about Jesus knows. He's not outside saying, Hey, just do it right. This is my expectation. I threw out my law. Just do it. He's drawn near in the cross to actually come and help us. That's his life on earth was to, to know and be unified with us. And so when we look at, at sexual lust, Jesus grew up and lived his whole adult life through those teenage years with just as strong of a sexual libido as any of us have. And yet still, even, he didn't withdraw from women of the opposite sex. He lived with them as a friend, as a good friend, and yet still, even though tempted in the same way we are, lived his life pure in mind and body as a single man without sin. Um, we're tempted also in the same way with grasping after and, and greed. And Jesus, you see in Philippians 2, that it says that he let go, kind of that opposite of grasping after. He let go of that equality with God, of that place of, of perfect riches, of perfect security, of perfect fullness, and came down to earth to be literally live a life of obscurity and then be beaten, mocked, falsely tried, and killed. For us, he let go of that comfort in material possessions as living as a poor, homeless man in disrepute and gave himself to the Father's will over his own comfort. So when we draw to him in our time of need, we look to a Jesus who has been there already and is with us through his Spirit and they can see us who we really are, knowing that we're believing a lie about our identity while we're living in sin and reassuring us that he's given us new identities. Our identity is not, we're not marked, identified by homosexual, straight, adulterer, non-cheater, slanderer, thief, any of that. We see ourselves rightly when we're broken free from that identity crisis of trying to escape from a stuckness and sin, and recognizing that Jesus has already escaped for us. And we begin to live at that point. God transforms our behavior, and we begin to live like sons and daughters again. And just like our kids, they start to look a lot more like us as they grow up. We start to look more and more like our dad, which is hopeful, amen? (laughs) I I think we all recognize that just like You know, that girl in the woods looking more and more like an animal, like there's a transformation that happens when the Father's love, when we're encountered by the Father's love. Um, I think that there's an encouragement, as I was saying, that Paul is is meaning to show here. And An analogy to encourage you is, that I heard was, our life as a Christian, we're never going to be completely free of sin until we're resurrected, living in a new life with Jesus. But an analogy that I heard that was helpful for me is that we're like a freezing cold person, has come out of the snow and is in a very warm room. And our life as Christians is stepping into that warm room and we begin to thaw off. Like we begin to warm. Jesus begins to change us. It doesn't mean we don't have coldness there, but it means there's a trajectory change. Our desire may have been, yes, I want to do right, but I can't. My desire is more my sin before. As Christians, that flips where we still have the desire to sin, but our desire to live righteously, is the one that actually has the sway ultimately in our life. So as we're standing as cold people in a warm room, as we grow and warm up and we become closer to room temperature and then warm, um, that's sanctification. That's God changing us, like his word says, from one degree to another to look more like him as he is the perfect picture of his father in heaven. So I want to end with looking even more at Jesus, who is a better inheritor of a better kingdom. Um, one thing that kind of struck me as I studied for this is looking at all the phrases in this, in this book in 1 Corinthians um, that are really weird and seem kind of contradictory. There's phrases in the Bible where we know very clearly things that talk about Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God. He's on that throne. And then Ephesians says, we're seated with him on that throne. It seems like that's a crowded throne. <laughs> it's a lot of people on this little throne here, right? It says that Jesus is the only one that can judge in Romans 2. He is the only judge, the righteous, the living and the dead, and the righteous and the unrighteous. And yet it says, just last week, I Jim talked about we're going to judge angels, we're going to judge this world. Which one is it? Who is it? There seems to be these contradictory phrases. And I think, rather than frustrating us and saying, well, the Bible contradicts, or so I just don't understand that, it's too lofty for me, I think that God has something to teach us even in these sections where it talks about we inherit and we have, we're going to be ruling really in a kingdom, the reason that we're able to, to judge angels and the reason that we're able to judge the world in the end is not because of who we are, but it's because we're in Christ. And I think that's the mystery, this idea of these almost contradictory ideas of like, we reign, yeah, but Jesus reigns. Like we're in him, he's in us. It's supposed to be a mystery that draws us to worship and wonder rather than something that frustrates us because we have to wrap our head around it. We should be like little kids that, on seeing this, like, "Well, I'm glad I don't understand that." Like, I wouldn't need a father then. I think we'll understand more as we grow. But there's a spiritual, mystical, mysterious backdrop um, in some of these phrases. And so, when we look at Jesus and this idea that we're in Him, going back to that bookends of inheriting the kingdom of God, I think it it connects us to a concept of sonship, of kingship, and inheritance that are exclusive to Jesus. Um, How can we be seated with the Father? It's because Jesus ascended to the throne and we rose and ascended with him, or will in the end. So we're in him. How is it that we can be judging angels in the world? It's because Jesus was given the authority as a judge and we're in him. How is it that we can be ruling with Jesus? It's because Jesus was crowned the King of Kings and we're in him. How is it that we can be called children of God? when Jesus was the only begotten Son of God? It's because we are in Him. How is it that we can be inheritors of a kingdom of perfection? It's because Jesus was the firstborn from the dead, and that double portion is shared with us, and we rose in Him, and we're in Him. We now share in the kingdom of the promised land in Jesus. And so going back to the idea of Mowgli and whatever the the book. Baloo, like boogloo, um, they're, they're, it's, it's so fake, right? I mean, that's not really how that happens. Like, you can't grow up raised by animals and so, re- retain this, like, living and this behavior of humanity. And yet, the other side, the actual stories that happen, even some in the U.S. that are so sad and disgusting, they're so depressing. But there's a better story in that, that in Christ we have literally become a new creation, that who we are now is not what we will be fully, and there's hope because the Spirit has power that we can change and that we will change. Um, If we look at like the hope in that story of the four-year-old girl that was lost, 42 years later was found, that gives us this joy, and I think that it resonates so much because we all want to be found. We all, we most of us haven't lived in the woods and grown up that way, but we all feel this measure of lostness, and especially this aloneness as we're trying to fight through and by the skin of our teeth to get out of our sin and get to a better place and get to a greener grass. And the fact is, like, God is pursuing us. We're running, and God's just saying, "Stop. Just surrender. Surrender and be found." And when we see the Father, <laughs> the Father's welcome. It does way more than what it did for that girl 42 years later. It actually changes us back to who we are. Whereas in this world now, there's no way that we can really change from our environments, from what we have believed, from how we grew up. But in Christ, there is a possibility for real change and a real renewed behavior that's more and more like our Father.